and welcome to Perfect Nighting. I'm your host Neil Perryman and this is my small attempt at spreading a little love across the internet that doesn't involve any cats. Today's very special guest is Graham Kibble-White. You may know Graham from Doctor Who magazine, but I know him as the guy I pay to draw pictures of my wife cosplaying. He's also the editor of TV Years magazine and he's invited me round to his place so we can share some exciting news about that as well as his perfect night in. So let's go and meet him. Hello, Graham. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks so much for coming to share your perfect 90s night in with us. Well, no, thank you for the cynical marketing opportunity. Yes, would you like to explain why you've chosen a 90s night in? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I am a big fan of 90s TV anyway, but I am editing a magazine called TV Years and we have a 90s special out this month. So this is what you would call a synergy. So could you explain what your environment for this 90s night looks like? Have you themed it? Are you wearing anything baggy? Oh, do you know, I didn't think about this. Um, So I would probably be wearing, it's got to be an Adidas. You know those T-shirts they had with the double stripe down the sleeve? Normally a kind of a sky blue, aren't they? It's going to be tracksuit bottoms, but it would be uh, Converse All-Stars because like when I was a student, that was the thing to have, wasn't it? Uh, A pair of Converse. That's what I'm wearing. What are you wearing, Neil? I do all my podcasts naked. Okay. And on that bombshell, it's six o'clock, Graham, so let's get your perfect night in underway. Well, that's the music for the greatest opening titles of... Uh, possibly any TV show ever, but certainly of a bit of Fry and Laurie. It's from Series 2, and this is Episode 1 of Series 2, which just sneaks in. It went out on the 9th of March, 1990. And it's the title sequence which (laughs) has the thing with uh, Fry and Laurie uh, kind of like on a tourist day out in London, but the best thing of all, of course, is arriving at Television Centre. And any show that has people arriving at Television Centre is instant classic in my mind. I've always loved a bit of Fry and Laurie. I actually would have to be honest here and say the first series which went out uh, the previous year is better this is still very very good Uh, third series is great fourth is unspeakably awful but I suppose that what we see in this show is that two uh, very gifted comics uh, Hugh Laurie in particular very gifted actor and they're pushing the the cusp of acceptable kind of comedy fogeyishness which they're both brilliant at. And I think as they themselves have pointed out later on, it's not the kind of comedy that one could now do at their time of life. But when you're a 20-something comedian and you're you're acting this kind of as if you're a 50-year-old professor, which is very much a lot of what their comedy was like, it's sort of velvet jackets, that laboured intonation of a bit of Fry and Laurie. I always loved all of that. It's a, a slight element of pissing into their own tents and that they're, they're really mocking... The class that they come from. The key to dancercise is the rather ingenious coupling of the word dance to the word circumcise. <laughs> I never had a TV during the early 90s, so I don't what? think I ever. St- yeah, I don't think I ever saw this program. Right. I knew Fry and Laurie from Saturday Night Live and Friday Night Live, but I never actually saw this. Did they have any like recurring characters? Yes, they did. Uh, um, the first series was less so. I think it, they, they would be one-offs. In the second series is the uh, the first time they start having things coming back. In the first series, uh, what they did have that was recurrent was these kind of faux vox pops, which you see in this episode. But the characters like Control and Murchison, the two spies that 
talk as if they're in an episode of Play School. They were from the first series and, and they follow through all the way through this second series. And you've got John and Peter, the two kind of damn it businessmen. And again, they were from series one, but they become recurrent characters in this series as well. I think John and Peter, it's just, it's, it's weird when you look at it now, it's perhaps cliched almost, but I'm not sure that people at the time were mocking that sort of businessman macho bullshit speak. And Fran Laurie really kind of skewered that in there. What is this, some kind of game? No game, John. Tell me what you see. I see a car park. <laughs> well, that's funny, John, because you know the last time you looked out of that window, you saw an idea. Don't you remember? Yes, I remember thinking that would be a good place to put a car park. <laughs> Damn it, John, you're not listening to me. I'm talking about the big idea, the, the dream that you and I shared. The dream of a health club that would put the town of Utoxida on the goddamn map. <laughs> a couple of sketches you would think if you read the script for them, they just look like nothing. It's almost like there are no jokes. But there's one here which is a witness to a traffic accident. And uh, Hugh's playing this character who is an Australian who has clearly witnessed some kind of... Tra- and it, the whole setup is just a news reporter wants to get a passerby to do a succinct piece to camera. And it's just really funny because he keeps getting it wrong. He keeps going before they're ready to take. It's funny that for no reason he's Australian. That makes it funny. But it, I think the whole the whole comedy in it is that he's so desperate to be helpful and he's so good-hearted, this guy, who just wants to get across this traffic report and he just f***s it up every time. Um, I was watching it again this morning, actually, and something I've never noticed before in the background is there is an old lady with her shopping who is... She's making her way painfully home. She is clearly a genuine passerby and she keeps getting drawn into what's going on here. She keeps stopping and turning around and having another little look, right to the point where at the end where we see um, Stephen's character, Twat Hugh. So, I mean, there are so many little details in there. Brian, are we ready? Yep, ready. Okay, then, I was standing here and this guy... Shut up! All right, yeah. Please, do not say anything until I have asked you a question. All right, I get you, I get you. Sorry, sorry, yeah, okay. Good. Right, thank you. Now, I was standing here and this guy... I'm hearing round the corner. Wait until I have asked you a question. Okay. Right. I'm standing here and this guy. So they both went on to bigger and better things, both Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Do you think they'll ever come back and do something together? No, I don't think so. And I, I actually, I would say they went on to bigger and worse things. I think they never did anything that was as good as this. Well, one thing that they've both said is that sketch comedy is a young man's game, which I and I think that's true. There would be something unseemly about them doing it now. I mean, Stephen Fry is, he's more often than not quite annoying. Uh, and Hugh Laurie, now that he's released an album, is it, what, what kind of music? Is it blues music he does? He can't really be welcomed back onto television in the same way. But, you know, I think that's fine. What we got from them was, was great. It was unprepossessing. It was very funny. I like the way they managed to sneak felching into the programme. Well, they always said that they, they were able to get more obscene material on telly than any other comedy show because they both sounded so posh. There we go. <laughs> Nearly there. And four felching pens and a bevelled spill trunnion. <laughs> Yeah, I think we've only got one felching pen left, as it happens. Ah. Got some frotting pencils, though. <laughs> well, you know the thrush plate? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can use the frothing pencil on that. You see, rude to the lookout valve on the funk spoke. <laughs> uh, cut out the felching altogether, provided you remember to rim the satchel arm properly. All <laughs> oh, right, well, I'll, I'll have the frothing pencil. Right. Okay, Graham, so a bit of fry and lorry takes us up to 6.30, and your next choice doesn't have a theme tune, so I can't play it, so you might as well just tell us what it is. Okay, this is Cracker. You could have picked almost any episode that's written by Jimmy McGovern. This is from Series 2, and it's the story Men Should Weep. It went out in 1994. It's the first cracker story, I think, that comes after a cracker that wasn't written by uh, Jimmy McGovern. So the preceding story was called The Big Crunch by Ted Whitehead. And that showed Cracker more as a crime drama about puzzles. And then suddenly you're lurching back into this, which is a big, horrible story where there's no whodunit element. There's no cerebral solving of problems it's just a really nasty story about a rapist we have an interview with Jimmy McGovern in our issue and he points out entirely reasonably that the storyline it just wouldn't fly today it looks at rape but it looks at rape almost entirely in how it impacts on men so I mean that's not necessarily an invalid approach but it's it's just not the narrative that we need right now is it I know you did it and I know why you did it you ask yourself what would other men do kill the bastard Something in here said you shouldn't do it, that it was barbaric, but you'd something to prove. Not your wife, not yourself, but to other men. Nothing to do with revenge. You didn't wait for the guy who actually did it, hmm? Went out and picked in some innocent little pervert, and every punch you threw said, I am a man. I've been raped, my wife has been raped, but I am still a man. When it first started airing, I think I was at university and it was not on my radar and I genuinely heard people talking about it. And I thought, okay, well, because, you know, one just assumed it was another ITV crime drama. And it just made me think, watching it again, that this is back in the day when we were allowed to find big TV series for ourselves. And today... Big TV series are now launched and we're told that they're big TV series. We're told what our next TV obsession is going to be. Cracker would absolutely be that now if it was starting today. And you would have entertainment journalists who are who are telling you, you're going to be into this, you'll love this, because not only are the publicists wanting a big hit, but all the journalists also want to be part of that gold rush of being somehow associated with a massive TV hit. And I, it was lovely, I think, just in the... As I mean, this sounds like dewy-eyed nostalgia, but the fact that a show like that was able to just make its own way onto telly and then just really hit big when people discover it and think, shit, that wasn't what I was expecting at all. Keep your opinions to yourself. You've already upset a fellow officer. Who? Well, now I'll keep your mouth shut. Who have I upset? It doesn't matter who you've upset. I'm sorry, sir, but it does. Someone's complained about me, yeah? Yeah. Van Halligan? No. I don't believe you. Tough. DCI Billbrook would never allow this. A copper going behind her mate's back. I'm not. Bilbra. No, sir. Jimmy, don't push your luck. DCI Bilbra always encouraged us to speak our minds. Oh, piss off. One thing that did make me wonder watching it is if Jimmy McGovern had been influenced in writing it by the storyline in Brookside where Sheila Grant was also raped by a cabbie because he was on that writing team at the time. So I, I do wonder whether he thought, yeah, there's something more that we could we could do with it, I think. And some of the dialogue... In it, I mean, here's a real gift for dialogue. People say clever things, but they say clever things that sound like real things. And people say horrid things. 
but they don't say horrid things that sound like they're an arch villain horrid thing. There's a there's a bit where the um, the rapist says, "I've never raped no one in my lifetime," which is a grammatically broken sentence, but it, it just sounds so real. You think I raped a woman in 1989? Well, didn't you? No. I was sent down for it. Eh? But I've never raped no one in my lifetime. So can I go now, please? Where were you last night? Driving the cab. I finished about eight. I went home and I stayed home. Me mum, me brother and me sister, three people, right? They'll back that up. Can I go now? Please. The other famous one, of course, is the one about Hillsborough, and it deals with really combustible subjects, but in a really nicely constructed way with people talking realistically. I think Jimmy McGovern's very good at doing this. He takes a massive subject and he knows he doesn't need to layer it on top with archness and extra cleverness. So I, I just can't imagine ITV, I can't imagine any network, unless it's a pay-per-view network, commissioning something like this now or allowing something like it. I'd sooner be the victim, you know, than the, than the husband of the victim. Air rolls map down, our friends come around, you know, and offer condolences and, and, and say how sorry they are. No one says a blind thing to me. I'm not the one who's been hurt, aren't I? I am. I have been hurt. Do you remember um, Christopher Eccleston's character, DCI Bilborough? Oh, yeah. So um, Eccleston wanted to leave the series, in the, the second series, and uh, Jimmy had to ring him and at least persuade him to stay on so they could write him out, and he talked him through his death scene. Now, the death scene proved so successful and apparently got Christopher Eccleston a lot of work afterwards that then what happened was Lorcan Cranich, who plays Jimmy, says, oh, right, I want you to kill me next, which is why we then have... Jimmy Beck. I think he jumps off a roof, doesn't he, at the end of uh, the following series. But this is a problem that um, Jimmy McGovern had made for himself, giving these characters such powerful exes that suddenly they were, all the actors wanted a piece of it. This is the statement of a dying man, or it was almost a catchphrase, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. I'm shocked that Christopher Eccleston wanted to leave a popular series. Huh. Who would have thought? OK, so I don't know about you, Graham, but I'm feeling a bit peckish. And Can I get you something to eat? Uh, well, I'm going to keep it strictly 90s, so I would like probably a Phineas Fogg bag of gourmet crisps, but I don't mind as long as they're one of the big bags of gourmet crisps that started coming out in the 90s. If you've watched The Air Zone Solution, Peter Davison, I think Sylvester McCoy, they're working their way through some uh, gourmet crisps at the time as well. I think theirs might be kettle chips, but I'll go Phineas Fogg, please. My family was poor, but Mama's tortilla chips were the most delicious in all Mexico. They brought her great wealth. She bought a jacuzzi, but disaster. The Ministry of Cruel but Fair Trading discovered she imported her tortilla chips from Medomsley Road Consett in County Durham. Now she lives in abject poverty with only a Pat Boone record for company. Aye, aye, aye. Oh, oh, oh. Pay attention, Phyllis Fogg, authentic snacks made in Medamsey Road concert. Not Monster Munch. Uh, no, but uh, my answer would be roast beef. I'll just add that to my list. Thank you very much. It's 7.30 and your next choice is...
Uh, this is Changing Rooms, of course. This is from September 1996. Um, this is while the show was still on BBC Two. And in particular, I've picked episode two. But I love, I love Changing Rooms. You'll be pleased to know, Neil, that there is an epic Changing Rooms feature in the new uh, TV years. So all of your Changing Room questions, and I know you've got a lot... But um, they're all going to be answered. But I mean, even we've heard that music there. Even the music itself is perfect. It gets across everything you need to know about the series. It's trying to be jolly, but it's riddled with anxiety. In this episode, they're in Liverpool. And it's only episode two. And uh, Andy Kane already has a Handy Andy T-shirt. So, I mean, they really knew that they had a hit on their hands. So there's a homeowner called uh, Michelle and Joubert who have uh, Indian heritage, but specifically say they don't want Indian colours. Uh, and there's Sandra and Robert, and the only thing they're willing to offer is that they quite like rugs. So Linda Barker is assigned to Michelle and Joubert's house, and immediately she starts talking about saris. She starts talking about strong, spicy colours. Because that's just what you do in telly, isn't it? It's, it's also, you see it on game shows, you latch on just to the one thing. The one thing that they've given about themselves, that's fine. I, I'm not really interested in knowing anything else. That's just how we're going to define you in this show. So she's trying to make over their Liverpool front room and turn it into something, I don't know, from the Raj or something like that. It's a bit bright, I know, but I know she's really homesick. So I'm kind of going to get all these colours of India and I know they're from Goa and lots of spicy colours about... What about um, the fire? We've, talk, we've hoped to change the fire. Yeah. I'll take it out. We'll get rid of the fire completely. And I've got some mosaic, oh, which is a fabulous yeah. colour. So we're going to mosaic it. The other thing with changing rooms is it has a kind of... A mythology, a kind of a continuity. We're talking about storylines that are thread through Cracker. Well, here in Changing Rooms, we have, it, just in this one episode, we have a decoupage. We have ageing a bit of paper with tea bags. We have st someone applying scumble glaze. There's antiquing wax. There's a whole business that whenever they make over a room, and it's normally someone's front room, they have to hide the telly away in a cabinet as if... <laughs> It's the worst thing to be. Can you imagine that afterwards? That every, you know, you actually go to switch on your episode of Change Rooms. You're thinking, uh, actually, where's that? Oh, shite, we've got to open that. And now we've got a, f a door flapping in our room just so that we can watch the telly. You have the whole business at the end of the episode with Carol has to physically restrain the homeowners so they don't leave shot during the final reveal. It's just all these little bits of television kind of... What is the word? It's almost like little format points that the show has already established. But the greatest thing about this episode is the other designer, which is Graham Wynn. And he is my favourite person in Changing Rooms across the whole, the whole run of Changing Rooms. And, you know, that's stiff competition. But Graham Wynn, I just love Graham Wynn. He was very real. He's very untelevisual. He's a lugubrious character. He sighs. He's a damp squib. He's a worrier. He hasn't got the kind of instant energy that Linda Barker's got. And it just makes him a much more lovable person. And he is also responsible for the show's first ever core celebrity, which is, and this is the real point of this episode, it's the fact that Graham paints a floor on day one and on day two it's not dry. I mean, that is a huge storyline and it makes changing rooms. This is the thing that really propelled changing rooms into the stratosphere. This thing of, well, what's Graham going to do now? You know, he's on his uppers. Um, he's got to get this this room done but now they're having to do all the rest of the designing in the garden in the hope that this floor is going to dry. Another thing that um, uh, people don't tend to know about day two of changing rooms is that Carol Smiley had a clause in her contract which was that she had to be back home to put her kids to bed on day two back home in Glasgow. So day two 
would lose a massive chunk because of this um, proviso from Carol. So, you know, Graham is really up against it. And so you have the whole business of what is he going to do? I think on most shows or shows prior to this, this would be seen as a production problem. And this would be seen as a thing where you stop the cameras and you have a meeting and you sort it out. But the brilliance of changing rooms is that someone realises, no, this is the show. This is where we keep the cameras rolling. Why are you spending so much time outdoors when the walls haven't been done yet inside? It's a long story, Carol. The floor isn't dry. We can't go in there. So I'm sitting out here like a garden gnome, trying to sort of finish off things that uh, normally would be last-minute things. It's all done in reverse today, I'm afraid. How long before the floor dries? We think another couple of hours, so we've only got about two hours in that room before we hand over keys to paint walls. Can you do it? Put up a mantelpiece. God knows what. I don't know, it's like Challenge Annika, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. If you want to make this whole podcast about changing rooms, I'm up for it. I'm sensing you want me to go deeper into changing rooms format points, so I'll do that for you. But um, this is something else that Graham Wynn told me. Alas, it hasn't made it into the final interview in the piece because, you know, stupidly, one can only allow so much changing rooms, alas. But um, they used to have in in the first series, they had this little format point, which is that once the uh, makeovers had been done, then what happens is the homeowners come and see it. And the designer is made to stay in shot on a little kind of inset screen to watch the response to their makeover. Now, as Graham says, they didn't like what he'd done to their house. And this is the thing where he's he's managed to recover the floor situation, thank God. But of course, it's not been his greatest work. So after all that shite, he then has to sit and have a camera trained on them, on him rather, and watch as they come in and are thoroughly underwhelmed by what he's done. And he said he didn't know, I mean, what's he supposed to do in that situation? Is he supposed to be roaring with laughter? Is he supposed to be looking contrite or crying? So that was a format point that they they dropped from the second series. And actually, what I can tell you is, after that, what they used to do was they just used to put the designers in a cab and get them the f*** out of there before the homeowners had saw it. And so Anna ryder Richardson told me, because I've spoken to her for it, she told me that she would be at the airport and she would get a phone call saying, oh, they hated it, Anna. And she'd, she'd literally left the county by that point. You can be as honest as you like. I like, I like, I like the colour. Oh, my God, he likes the colour. I don't know what's happened to the couches. It's the same couches. They're underneath. They're just loose covers. Loose covers? Yeah. Oh, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> that's fine. I They're coming was, off. I thought that was the dust sheets, actually. <laughs> but no. I don't the like floor. the floor. No? I think we did have a carpet, didn't we? Yeah, it's not very nice, isn't it? Black. Should it come back? Yes. I mean, that is a complete no-brainer. Why isn't it back? I asked this question of Graham Wynn, and he said that, yes, it should, and he's still available. Uh, Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen pointed out the fact that BBC last year was doing the Great Interior Design Challenge, which is a sort of a it's a it's a quasi changing room, but with with some element of respectability. But as he points out, it just didn't have the silly panto that changing rooms has. Why is that show not back on television? It's something like um, it's it's a format like Top of the Pops or would like to meet. Television is bereft while those those kind of shows aren't on. Changing rooms should always be on television. OK, Graham, it's eight o'clock and irritatingly, your next choice also doesn't have a theme tune. So you might as well just tell us what it is again. I've chosen an episode of Cutting Edge, the Channel 4 documentary Strand. This is uh, an episode that went out on the 16th of September and it's called Paradise Island. I say this without any irony. It might be the greatest programme I've ever seen. It follows (laughs) Tony and... Don't laugh, Neil. Is it better than the 1996 TV movie with Paul McGann? Yeah, 
I think it is, genuinely. I know, it's a, it's a bold claim. It follows Tony and Lynn Craig, who describe themselves ominously as a normal family. They've placed an advert in the Times and they're looking for like-minded people to join them in their venture, to buy an island in the Gulf of Mexico, to establish a private community of nice middle-class people in early retirement. I mean, already, that's a concept for a drama, isn't it? That's a K-Mella drama. It's such a wonderful starting point. And then you have Mark Halliday, who's normally providing a booming voiceover in The Apprentice, and he's the voiceover guy here, and he's very calming presence, and his narration is delivered in the past tense, which makes it all kind of play out like a fable. And you've watched this, haven't you? And I wonder what you made of it, because I, I tried to make sure I didn't tell you anything about it before making you watch it. It starts off like it's the most expensive swingers party ever conceived. <laughs> Albeit a swingers party with a very limited demographic. But then I realised that um, Eurosceptics have been around a lot longer than the last two years. And it turns out there are a bunch of like UKIPers, aren't they, really? Our objective is to um, make a relatively simple life, get away from a, a lot of the nonsense that's happening in Europe. We have to eat um, straight cucumbers in Europe. We're not allowed to eat it if they've got a ven, because the European Parliament they want to standardize and homogenize everything and it's not much of a step from standardizing your food to standardizing your people the other thing about tony craig is he keeps offering up no one's asked him and he just keeps vouching safe that there's no point in them running psychological profiling on any of the possible islanders and you're not going to find the mad axe murder until they strike now no one's even gone there in that discussion but tony just three times i think in the program he offers up that point of view apropos of absolutely nothing all the time while this is happening so he's gathering together this kind of coterie of like-minded people albeit like-minded people who are i think have to pay some like a hundred k in advance or something it's like the 1990s fire festival <laughs> yes it is that's a very good analogy <laughs> um all the time while they're kind of getting together and things they have this other character in it a guy called john bailey who lives in the north he's a carpenter he's working class basically and he never gets near them he desperately wants to be part of this he's lonely he talks very eloquently about how lonely he is how small his life has become he doesn't have the money but he does have genuine skills carpentry skills that they're going to need he never even gets their newsletter from them and it's just the pathos of it. And not only that is is the fact that John Bailey, he didn't read about this venture in The Times. He read about it in Today newspaper. I think that's genius how they found him. Maybe at the time they thought they were following a story that's going to progress and perhaps he would become part of the narrative. He's never in the narrative. But the fact that they still include him in the show, I think is fantastic. I still miss that adult conversation at night and the weekends. It's very lonely. Like I say now, there's, there's no community really in church I go to. Sense of beginning is gone. The other thing that this, this does, and I think there's a bit of it in Changing Rooms as well, is it's a look at what happens when people who self-identify as being nice, decent people fall out with each other and how they go about falling out with each other. And so there's this couple called Chris and Sue Bradley, a retired architect and designer who are part of the, the island group. And while Tony and his wife are away in Panama, potentially um, doing a deal to buy San Jose, he and some of the others start to get a little bit upset about the fact that there haven't been newsletters from Tony. He hasn't been in touch. And so they start forming this rebellion. And we have a meeting where he's, he's getting all the dissenters together. 
And it's a rebellion that's formed via an agenda. He talks about a mail-out. He talks about sending a questionnaire. He talks about a steering committee. And I just love all those kind of elements, this kind of micromanaged calamity or something. What are we going to do? We're going to do it. The next thing is a mail-out to communicate to people, isn't it? Yes. A mail-out. And that mail-out must contain questionnaire, mm -hmm. one. Covering that. Two, uh, two... Um, report. A report on the island. Okay. Is that what we're going to do? I can't think of anything else to do. It. I mean, if we were organising the Boy Scouts Jamboree, we'd have to do something similar to this, wouldn't we? So all this is going on, and that's, you sort of think that is what, what it's about. It's about these idiots trying to get together and, and make this perfect community. And then at the end of part two, suddenly there's a silhouette of a woman saying that she thinks Tony Craig is extremely dangerous. And then you just think, this show, who is she? This programme has got everything. How does she fit into the story? Uh, and can you imagine? And um, my copy, I think I must have been recording Cutting Edge off air. I'm so glad that I beautifully edited out the commercial break because that would kill me to get through that break now. It was a shock to see him. My daughter hadn't seen him since she was about 13 years old. He can charm the birds out of the trees, and I think that's probably why he has managed to take in quite a lot of people. And it isn't their fault, because, you know, I, I'm one of them. This twist happens, and Tony still sticks around to account for it on camera. They, they get to... Shall I, shall I talk a bit more about what yeah, the twist yeah. is? So this is his ex-wife, who um, he's never mentioned before, and he has a daughter with. And it went to court that he was accused of basically abusing his daughter. He was found not guilty, but then there was a civil case, wasn't there, which he did have to pay out for. So she's suddenly come out of the woodwork. Tony is then questioned about this, and he uses, in a very kind of underpowered way, he uses extraordinary language, doesn't he, about people who are trying to destroy him. My daughter was abused over a, uh, an eight-year period, from about the age of five. I haven't got a daughter. They don't exist, these people. He then disappears, doesn't he? I mean, the, the, the end of the documentary is the whole thing has collapsed. It turns out that the island he wanted to buy, San Jose, turned out the military dumped nerve gas on there in the war anyway. He's gone. I don't think anyone's particularly out of money. I think maybe they've lost 30 quid each or something. Poor old um, John Bailey, the northern carpenter. You know, I'm still fretting for him now. Did he ever find someone to talk to of an evening? The other thing that about the show is, Neil, imagine if it had worked. Imagine if now we, that community was still there on San Jose with Chris and Sue Bradley doing their mail-outs and their steering committee and their questionnaires. I mean, that would be a wonderful prospect, wouldn't it? We did some research, didn't we? We can't find any trace of this guy. No, I'd love to know what happened to him. If you have a kind of a, a right-to-reply service in this podcast, if someone can tell me what's happened to the carpenter, John Bailey, I would love to know. It's end of part one. Which ad break have you chosen for us? The ad I've chosen is one that was, I've checked, it was still in rotation, certainly around 19, uh, 1991. It's the Rap 2 advert. You think that um, Ice Cubes could stop the Rap 2? Rap 2 crushes that idea. Unbelievable. Try it with an egg. One push here, egg salad here, and the shell here. Amazing. You get everything complete. Both machines, the safety bowl and all the attachments for only 19.95. Order your wrap too now. It's such a nice advert. OK, Graham, it's nine o'clock 
and your next choice is Drew Kane and Scott Burgess Andrea and Lisa Gordon David Angus and Andy Stewart Tonight, these people are on the run somewhere in mainland Britain. We have just one hour to track them down. We need your help on Wanted. The easiest way to describe it now is it's a precursor to Channel 4's Hunted. It's pretty much the same format. But this was 1996, so it was ahead of its time. It was arguably ahead of its capabilities. But it was such a kind of a swaggering idea to do this fugitive-style show, which they did live. I mean, that in itself is incredible. Um, the format was setting three teams of two people out in mainland Britain where they had to film themselves performing a daily task, something like meeting a mayor or going to a local um, newspaper offices without being caught on camera by their pursuer. So it's like sort of a cat-and-mouse game. And then the end game on the end of each episode is they have to find a telephone box and they have to stay in there for the hour-long duration of the live and I think at this point it was Sunday night episode with the idea that if the pursuer then captures them during that hour it's game over for them. I suppose the controversial element about this when you look at it today is the fact that it's hosted by Richard Littlejohn. You know one could say well actually there he is inside a kind of giant biscuit tin come dungeon and that's possibly a good place for him. But he actually does a pretty good job. His tabloid instincts are a kind of a strength and a weakness. So in the plus column, he's really good at seeing what the stories are in the show each week. He's really good at honing in on asking the sort of um, very tabloidy question of the people to really kind of get straight in there. But he also makes these really awful clanging remarks. There's a, a line, isn't there, in the first episode where he's introducing one of the trackers, Victoria Fay. We saw your special skills at the top of the at the top of the uh, at the top of the program. It said extreme sports. I mean, what is that? Topless darts or something? She can't even hold her composure together at that point. She actually says something like, oh, "Very funny, uh, Richard." But he is really good. Well, let, let's see if we can join Victoria. Victoria, can you hear me? Yes, hello, Richard. We, we can hear you. You're cracking up a bit. Where, whereabouts are you? Can you repeat that? Yeah, OK, we've heard you on the M42. My mobile phone cracks up like that. Let, let's go to the, to the chaps you're chasing. Look, Drew and, and, and Scott, there, yeah. she's, she's on the M42. She could be heading your way. Do you think you're going to make it? I don't know. I'm really nervous. Um, Only one minute 40 left. Live TV is very hard to do at the best of times, but when you're dealing with people in phone boxes and satellite link-ups and members of the public, and in fact, something does go wrong on the first episode, doesn't it? Yeah, they've lost two of their contestants, uh, Lisa and Andrea, sisters, and they, I mean, they do what I would have done. They just bottle out. They just the paranoia gets too much of them. They, they can't be bothered. And later in the series, I think the penultimate episode of the first series, they have um, a couple of runners <laughs> who try and bribe the, uh, the their pursuers, and they, really? and, yeah, and they go with that. They go with that storyline. So they they talk about you know, well, if you can not catch us, then what we'll do is we'll give you some of our prize money, and they arrange a handover in the toilets, and you can you know. Richard Littlejohn's a pig in shit with all of this and loving the fact that he has a breaking news story sort of on his watch. Can I just thank everyone that's helped us this week because everyone has been tremendous. They've You're going to need so all the help us. you can get next week. You've got to go to a different cathedral every day of the week and have a tea with a bishop or a member of his staff. 
Off you go. Let's go to Dave and Ang uh, to, to, to Dave and Andy. Hi, chaps. One of the things they get wrong is that this went out in October, and so when it airs, it's dark. So you've got a whole live show of people running around dark streets. So the second series goes out in the summer. It looks a little lighter. They have Ray Cokes, who they bring in from MTV, and he just goes to pieces. He just can't do it. And I think there's even a bit where he says on camera, oh, this is such a stressful show to do. I remember Ray Cokes vaguely. Yeah, he was going to be a big deal, wasn't he? And he was going to do Don't Forget Your Toothbrush. I once gave Ray Cokes technical support on uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator when I worked in a call centre. He called me a genius at the end of the call. Hang on a minute. You did you did technical support for Microsoft Flight Simulator? Oh, that's amongst my uh, my skill set. Outlook as well, if you've got, if you've got any problems there on rules or things like that, and Outlook, or backing up your contacts, I'm here for you. Anyway, getting back to uh, Wanted. So it was quite popular then, it ran for two series. Well, I'm not sure it was, uh, actually. I think it was one of these things whereby I'm not sure it ever found its audience. And it, it seems weird because as a premise, it's a it's a brilliant premise. It's a superb premise. But I think maybe, maybe the format is just a little bit too misshapen or there's too many bits of admin going on. Certainly now with Hunted, it's very linear, isn't it? It's very just, you you know, you get out there. And I think there probably are format points in Hunted that, are, that exist but are hidden from us as the viewer. Whereas in Wanted, all the format points are made very clear. It's like an itinerary. It's like a checklist of things they have to do. Whereas I'm sure in Hunted, they're told, no, you can't stay in this location two nights in a row. No, you must do this. You must do that. But all that kind of stuff is um, kept... Uh, kept away from us. Okay, Graham, once it takes us up to 10 o'clock and your next choice still isn't the TV movie with Paul McGann. Okay, well, I think earlier I might have made a claim that Changing Rooms had the best theme music uh, I'm going to rescind that now. We're in 1997 and it's Jonathan Creek. That's got the best theme music. It's got the best theme music and the worst ever logo. The logo is even worse than Virtual Murder's logo. Um, I think that it's only this year it's occurred to me, is the creek supposed to be a little key? Is that what that shitty shape is? But Jonathan Creek, I love Jonathan Creek. Uh, I know you're not so keen. This uh, episode I've picked is Series 1, Episode 3, The Reconstituted Corpse. And, you know, I think you're willing me to say this and I'm going to say it is a bit like Doctor Who and this episode in particular because it begins elsewhere. It sets up the jeopardy. We meet other characters, but all the time you're waiting for Jonathan to appear. You're longing for him to come along and then you're like, okay, now we're going. And watching it again recently, just for the sake of talking about it with you, I found it really interesting. It's kind of mainstream quality in a way that we sort of don't have now. It's high-end and it's lush and it's clever and it's totally populist as well. And I'm not sure that there's a show that does that at the moment. No, I just wondered how rehearsals went this morning with the elephant levitation. Oh, don't. You're kidding me. Well, where is it now? At this moment, under the stage and sinking. The scissors jammed under the trap and they can't shift it for love, no money. They're supposed to have checked all the hydraulics before they even started on a dry run. I don't know about dry runs. It's not very dry down there at the moment. By all accounts. You've got a five-ton elephant with irritable bowel syndrome stuck inside a metal cage. An audience coming in at seven o'clock. It's going to take more than a can of air freshener, believe me. In this one, it's a story about a woman who's had lots of plastic surgery and her surgeon is murdered and then 
the thought is that she's maybe killed him because he's getting very possessive and he's turned her into this beauty and he was obsessed with her. And she is able to give an alibi to say that she was at home when he was shot. And her alibi is then apparently confirmed by the fact that there's a peeping Tom in her garden who's been videoing her. And it looks like that they found a video that he's dumped, um, which shows her to be at home at the time of the murder. That's our A storyline, where it's this idea that has she done this, hasn't she? And one of the details is that the peeping Tom has to be very tall in order to have shot over her garden fence. That's our A storyline. At the same time, there's this B storyline, which is Maddie, who's going on a blind date with Nigel Planer, who I think has never been funnier or better than he is in this role here. And there's a two-shot of them at one point, which makes it clear that he is incredibly tall. And it's come just after we've had this other bit of info. Now, never at any point does the story ever suggest that he's the peeping Tom, that he's the culprit. But I think David Renwick, the writer, he knows that as viewers, we we always play a meta game with crime dramas and we look for clues which aren't in the story. So we think, oh, well, they've got a guest star there. Nigel Plain is in that B story, so he's got to connect to the A storyline at some point. And he just never does. It's such a clever bit of writing. I just love the way that David Renwick is able to kind of weave these two elements of story so that they never, ever entwine, but it always you always assume that they're going to at some point. I think that's really clever writing. I placed an advertisement in one of those contact columns. Madeline replied, and here we are, testing the water as to her, to see if we want to get into bed together. Not literally, I hasten to add. That's just a term we use in corporate management. Though speaking for myself, I have to say, one of Cupid's arrows has definitely found its mark. So, anyway... I like the sea plot with the dead elephant. Yes, that's good as well, and just sort of plays out in the back. And we, you never see the dead elephant, do you? You just kind of hear hear about it. And then the, the, the last thing, isn't there, which is where they're coming from a funeral, and one initially assumes it's going to be this woman, and it turns out they've been at the elephant's funeral. I, I just like all these kind of little deft, wrong-footed moves that David Rennick makes. It's still going now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. What it's done in later years is it's there's been this weird thing where David Renwick seems to return to the show only because the BBC won't commission him to do something else. So whenever he does press for a new Jonathan Creek, he'll always talk about, oh, well, I tried to get them to do this. And they said, no, how about doing another Jonathan Creek? And so the, the, one sees in it a little bit of resentment and he's he's kind of dismantled all the things that you see in this episode of Jonathan Creek. He no longer lives, you know, in the windmill, for example. He no longer works for a magician. I think he's actually now, he does something like he's in advertising or something or marketing. And when that first began and I saw that he's working for a marketing company, you you thought, oh, what's he doing here? It must be a prank or he must be. No, he actually works for a marketing company. So he's done all these things to almost like normalise the character, which is quite testing, I think for viewers because they're like well where's the quirky outside he's now a married man as well isn't he he's married to uh, someone played by Sarah Alexander uh, and he's settled all these things that go counter to what we think we want from Jonathan Creek but actually I still think it's when it gets going and when it gets its claws into another mystery I still think it's not what it was but it's still it's still very good I couldn't believe it when they dropped the coffin right outside the church no when it broke open and her trunk fell out, it was just so undignified. But they were never going to get the cables repaired on that crane. You know, Adam, you never does anything by halves. I think we could have done without the ten circus elephants trumpeting the last post at the crematorium. Oh, no. 
Sounded more like a traffic jam. Jonathan Creek takes up to 11pm and your next choice is... Uh, okay, so this is Living With The Enemy, which was made by the BBC Community Programme Unit. I wonder if they still exist. Um, and it went out in September 1998. And it's one of these um, formatted, I almost said reality shows. I don't think it would have described itself as that. It's a formatted show whereby they would put together two people with opposing ideologies and have them live together for a week to see if they could kind of find you know, any sort of... Uh, understanding now across the whole series there was never any understanding found neither party ever acquiesced on any of the issues and people would come away bruised but it was it wasn't as it wasn't as sensationalist as i make that sound maybe because it comes from the bbc community program unit it has this sort of measured element to it it reminds me a bit of the stuff that robert circle was doing for the bbc and i would have put if I could have had a, an extra show or something, I would have put one of his series in, something like Dangerous Company or Trouble at the Top. Um, it, but it reminds me of those kind of sort of business um, documentary shows that are all predicated on disharmony and people disagreeing over decisions. Now, the, this specific episode is about Paul Dainton, who's a Labour Party member for 30 years. And this is the year following um, Blair's general election triumph and new Labour is in the ascendant and Paul has lost his faith in new Labour and he's torn up his membership card and so what they do is they set him up with Derek Draper the new Labour lobbyist and he spends a week living with Derek Draper to see if new and old Labour can come to any understanding at all. Paul Dainton has lost faith in new Labour but is willing to put his criticisms to the test and spend the next few days living with Derek. And you'll put the world to rights. Tell I'll make sure I'll put the world to rights. I'll make sure of all that. From Wakefield, Yorkshire to Primrose Hill, London, their lives and what makes a good socialist couldn't be more different. It's such a vivid snapshot of the time. We have Derek Draper talking about the Blair Babes. That's, you know, two words I haven't heard together for, what, 10, 15 years? And there he is sort of poncing around... Westminster and Islington in his open-top sports car with a, a cheeky line of badinage for almost everyone that goes by. He knows everyone. And he is like a lot of people in New Labour at this, this time. He's on the crest of a wave. and you know, the wave is going to come crashing down soon. But at the moment, he is on the crest of a wave. And we see him at one point in the back of a cab with Paul sort of rolling his eyes while he's on the phone to the Telegraph. And he's feeding them lines about his pal Peter Mandelson. And not just Peter Mandelson, but Peter Mandelson's pal Stephen Fry. Well, he's very friendly with John Burt, actually. His real friend is Robert Harris and his wife, uh, Jill Hornby. I'll tell you who else is a friend of his, although I would not be thanked for saying it, although I'm just doing it live on television. Uh, and that is Harold James is quite a friend of his. There's a bit where, on the first night, where they've given them little kind of fix-rig diary cams, as they probably called them back then, and where Paul's in one room, Derek's in the other, and they have to do their little bit to camera. And he actually, he says, he says, it's a bit like blind date, this, isn't it? And he, he then says, you're, you'll have a bit of me, and then you'll cut back to him saying, oh, he's a dickhead, and then you'll come to... And that's precisely what what happens. That's precisely how, how they use the footage in the show. There's also the great bit, isn't there, with... Um, <laughs> where uh, Derek introduces Paul to his pal Peter Mandelson <laughs> uh, and he talks about how he went up to visit the constituency there. It's a mining constituency and how proud he is of the photo of himself with the miners and Paul telling him that actually when he went down the mine in the uh, the open top, what do they call that, the, the lift thing? Cage. The cage, yeah. All the miners up top were going, oh, let's piss on him and he actually had to stop them pissing <laughs> on Peter Mandelson.
and they go around the um, the dome. Yes, they do. And yeah, and you you forget what a hot potato that thing was. Um, Paul absolutely hates it, but then Paul is going to hate it, isn't he? Because it's sort of, well, it's a it's a Tory construct which New Labour have have got behind, although probably because they have to, and it would be a scandal if they'd then said, oh, we're not going to do this at all. It's very interesting, isn't it? I remember the peak of New Labour. I remember them coming in. Uh, the excitement and Tony Blair talking about how it was going to be a new kind of honest politics. And it's really interesting to see how quickly that bubble burst and then all the shit that was left um, afterwards. Lottery money should be spent on something for everybody. And I do not believe that this is going to be a major facility. I think big business must have made an absolute fortune out of this. They must have been laughing all the way to the bank. And then when somebody says... 25 years, we'll pull it down, we'll get paid for pulling it down as well. It's <laughs> letters of mad, a centrepiece of a sports stadium that will well, last forever. Well, we can use forever. it as a sports stadium you, afterwards. You but could the eyes throw of the a world, javelin. They, of course you bloody could. Look at the thing. You haven't seen you could, throwing you javelins could, from you Yorkshire. Could, you could fly a helicopter through that. OK, Graham, it's 11.30. Before we go to your next choice, uh, can I get you something to drink? Yes, you can. I will have, uh, I tried to think of the most 90s drink I could, so I'll have a bottle of Hooper's Hooch. Um, let's get the Alka Pops going. Um, I'll have a ooch, please. Oh, sorry. A ooch, please. Have a ooch. A uh, ooch. A ooch. 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 So your final choice at 11.30, Graham, is a programme I'd never even heard of before. This is a show that has really quickly slipped into obscurity and I'm not picking it for those reasons. I think, though, The Guardian, even five, ten years ago, did a list of 100 Greatest Shows and this was in there. But it is interesting how it's gone, uh, just vanished. So it's How Do You Want Me? This is the final episode ever, which went out on the 22nd of December 1999. And I should say that because of my... um, nerdish proclivities when I've scheduled my perfect night in of 90s telly I haven't done it in terms of a nice light and shade I've done it in chronological order so our first show was 1990 and this has taken us almost up to the very end of the decade 22nd of December Uh, it's a sitcom and it's uh, only ran to two series it starred Charlotte Coleman who who sadly passed away and I think that's maybe why there was no more of this it starred her as Lisa Dylan Moran as Ian and the premise was that he is a city boy who's fallen in love with her and she comes from the country they've relocated back to the country village uh, where she uh, grew up and then everything after that is just unutterably awful and shit for him he initially arrives and you know you know the kind of character Dylan Moran plays Uh, But in this, his sort of city cynicism and his intelligence, it just doesn't have any purchase, uh, you know, with with people there. He's seen as he should be seen as just being patronising and unwelcoming. And the whole thing then is just of him trying to get some kind of foothold, trying to be part of this community. And no one wants him there. Her family hate him. I'm sure Ian won't do it again. Dad will probably admire Ian now. He respects people with strong views. Remember how he loved Fred Flintstone but despised Barney because he never took the initiative? I'm I just really worried that every time I look at Ian, I'll just see him as the man who shot my dad. But he's done other things. He tries to set up a, a kind of dismal photography business, doesn't ever really get going. 
Um, the village is called Snowl. There's nothing bucolic about it. It's all about big slate grey skies under which horrible things are going on. And there's a character in here called Dean, who's played by Peter Serafinovitz, who is sort of like, and I should say, sorry, if I haven't, the show's written by Simon Nye, who gave us Men Behaving Badly. And in Dean, we have like the ultimate extrapolation of Gary and Tony from Men Behaving Badly in this this kind of lairish stupidity, except it just goes to the nth degree and he is just horrible. He's sort of convivially menacing. He turns up and pops an arm around a shoulder but then forces someone to the pub, you know, he gets them in a lock. And all the time he, he wants, we see his house in this, and it's just full of people with stupid nicknames, unconscious on the floor because, he, you know, he's plied them with so much alcohol. It's really, really, really horrible. Who's that? Well, it's not Gav, he knocks and shouts. Yeah, shouts and knocks. Yeah, I normally knock and shout. Shout and knock. Your turn, Chunky Chess! Chunks away. <laughs> You're very quiet here. Oh, um, I couldn't have noticed that Chunky Charles isn't very chunky. Yeah, well, he used to be, but um, we just couldn't be asked to call him just Chaz again. All right. And the thing that's really interesting about this across the two series, and I don't know if I'm selling it to you here, Neil, or, or not, is that it just never really progresses from from that initial starting point of him arriving and people not liking him. He never really makes any kind of inroads with anyone. And it's a funny sitcom, but it doesn't let its plot go off in comedy directions. The plot goes in drama directions with comedy kind of weaved around it. And the other thing it does is it gets across the kind of epicness, the epic horror of small dramas. So all this about is is a guy who can't get on with his in-laws which, you know, you would think that's a a tiny storyline in Coronation Street. But here, it really plays into all the drama of that and it shows how kind of crushing and crippling it can be. I gather Lisa's let you move back in. Yes, it's our house. That's where I live. But I agreed not to press charges against you on the understanding that your days in snow were numbered. Oh, OK. Now, if you're staying, I'm going to have to sue you. Grievous bodily harm, perhaps attempted murder. You don't mean that seriously. Oh. oh, I think you know I do. It was an accident. Oh, well, we'd had a row. You pointed a gun at me, pulled the trigger. Where's the accidental part? The ending is that, you know, Ian has had enough. He's, he's estranged from Lisa. He's living in his squalid... Um, well, initially he's he's living in his workplace, and then he he gets taken up by Dean, and he just wants to leave, and you can understand that. And he kind of makes an ultimatum, and Lisa has to meet him in the car. At, I don't know, it looks like midnight or something, because he's going, he's leaving town, and he gets there, and she is there, and then just at the end, he just bottles it. He just is like, well, actually, maybe I just wanted you to listen to me, or I don't know what to do now. And I just thought it's a really 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 clever ending this idea these things are so complicated actually when you get what you think you want it's panicking and it, I, th I just think it's a perfect way to finish it entertainment tonight on perfect night in tv at six o'clock frotting pencils at the ready it's a bit of fry and lorry at 6 30 we join the obese chain smoking alcoholic fits i could do that part. robbie coltrane stars in cracker 
At 7.30, how to make a grown woman cry. Let Linda Barker decorate your house in changing rooms. Then meet Tony and Lynn Craig, a couple who turn their backs on straight cucumbers and swingers parties for the good life on Paradise Island. Cutting Edge is at 8. Then running around the countryside with more sound problems than Annika Rice on Treasure Hunt, it's Wanted at 9. At 10, award-winning drama with Alan Davis and more elephant shit than Blue Peter, it's Jonathan Creek. Then someone from the north talks politics with a southerner in Living with the Enemy, that's at 11. And rounding things off at 11.30 is How Do You Want Me? as Dylan Moran leaves the rap race for the village snow and meets the in-laws from hell. Are there any other kind? That's tonight on Perfect Night in TV. Okay, Graham, got one final question for you, and that is who would you like to share your Perfect 90s night in with? Apart from me, obviously. Apart from you, okay, that's fine. I know Sue's busy. She's burning discs today, so she's got enough going on. Like it is the 1990s. Yeah. <laughs> Normally I would say my wife, and she would, I think, quite happily watch all this, but I'm trying to stay true to my 90s theme. So I think what I would like to do is spend it with my brother and our friend Richard, and we all used to share a flat in the 90s, just after we were students. And I remember Richard and I used to work in a kitchen together scrubbing dishes and we'd walk home having had a shit shift and say oh at least Alan Partridge is on tonight so he would probably be fine and also I remember when he was very stressed out with his exams the only thing that could make him decompress was watching the key to time season so there's a bit of Doctor Who there as well we got there eventually thanks Graham thank you Credit card holders, call now on 0235 865656 or send 2295 to RAP2, Admel 77, London SW13 9JJ.